Hello, everybody. What you're about to hear is part one of a two-part discussion about police and law enforcement in our communities. We had a great guest for both parts, Randy Peterson. He's a senior researcher at the Texas Public Policy Foundation. And during our time together, we got into topics like resisting arrest, use of force, and possible implications for defunding the police. Given the nationwide conversation about policing, budgets, and policymaking, it's very important to hear from someone who made their career both working as a police officer, but also responsible for training them. In these episodes, we learn about the reasons and processes that go into police use of force, as well as what's going through an officer's mind while making an arrest. In addition, we discuss funding, its impact on public safety, and also the importance of clear missions for police as they perform their duties. We hope you find this information as enlightening as we did. We now catch up with our interview. We hope you enjoy. Well, Randy, we've got a packed episode today, but first I want to get into your background, which I think is really relevant to our topic here today. And so if you don't mind, would you tell us about your background in law enforcement, both as a police officer that served on the line and also someone who in turn trained police officers? Sure. Uh, I was a police officer for 21 years in the village of Bloomingdale, uh, which is a, a city about 25 miles west of the city of Chicago in Illinois. There I did everything from patrol to training to SWAT investigations. Um, I retired as a watch commander in charge of the patrol division. So I had a, a pretty varied career there in policing. Uh, after I retired, I came down to Texas where I was the director of the Tarrant County College Police Academy. We served over 40 different jurisdictions in providing the police academy for their new recruits, as well as uh, some independent candidates, and probably double that number of agencies for in-service training for their current officers. So you've been on both sides. You've been on the uh, the do side and the teach side there. Correct. Yes. My next question for you, Randy, you know, it's kind of a basic one. And thank you for humoring me on this. And I think this is something that uh, we don't think about that often. And it's it can be a complex issue, but it's a real basic question I have for you. Because you talk about policy with the Texas Public Policy Foundation, I thought that this would be a perfect opener for you. What is the proper function of the police department? I know we ask our officers to do a lot, but what's the best, most efficient use of policing? Well, you could probably break it down really into just three simple things, right? The first one is protect rights, and that's the, the function of government in general, not just police officers. Secondly is to enforce the laws, and third is to preserve the peace. I think that everything that the police do can fall under one of those three headlines. It's real important. It doesn't matter what job you're doing, whether you're an accountant, a doctor, a nurse, it doesn't matter. Everybody likes to have clear expectations. But I think especially when it comes to law enforcement, that's important. So just from your experience, you know, maybe give us some reasons and some examples. You know, why is it so important for police officers to have a clear understanding of duty, a clear expectation when they go out and serve their communities? Oh, it's, it's absolutely vital. They need to understand the mission, not, not just their, their policing mission, because that, as I said, that, that would fall under probably any of those three categories at any given moment of their day. But their actual department culture and the culture of the community that they work in, right, those are different everywhere. I, you know, I, I told you from my experience, I was a police officer only about 25 minutes from the city of Chicago, but Bloomingdale had a very different culture as a police department and as a community than any of the, I think, 26 different districts in the city of Chicago, despite not being that 
far away. But you can make that contrast even sharper by saying that we were also different from any of the towns that surrounded us as they were different from the towns that surrounded them. Policing is a very unique local experience and it needs to be. And in order for it to be effective in that manner and to be uniquely local in its operations, the officers have to have a very clear mission. And that has to start from not just the top, but from the community engaging with the police department to explain how they want to be policed, right? What are their priorities? What do they see right and wrong? What are their concerns? And then that has to all be comprehensively blended in order to give officers what their mission is. I want to transition into defunding the police. And obviously, this is a phrase that's been out there and there's been a lot of different meanings injected into it. So we've heard defunding the police. We've heard reimagining policing. We've heard uh, reallocation of funding. But I want to talk about that from the public safety perspective. And, and you're close with this. You know, you've seen this from a public policy. You've been in service as a police officer. You know, what would that, if you remove funding from a police department, how does it impact public safety? Uh, well, it, it impacts it directly in some cases. And it, re- it really, as you stated, there's some different ideas about how to do this. And some cities have already begun doing some of this. It depends on how they do it as to how it's going to affect. But, you know, for instance, in uh, uh, New York, the NYPD eliminated all of its anti-crime units. You know, these were plainclothes officers tasked mostly with proactive gun violence interdiction. And um, I, I think that we're already seeing the rewards of that elimination happen as, you know, shootings and, and murders are on the rise there in, in New York. The other end of that, though, is let's say that the, you don't take a more direct approach to hurting public safety would be by, let's say, eliminating overtime or just cutting personnel costs. One of the first things that has to go then is training. And I know later in the conversation, we'll probably talk more about use of force, but the people who are advocating for reducing training, I don't think they realize the corresponding change in what an untrained officer's reasonableness standard would be in using force. It will have the exact opposite effect of what I think that they are intending to do here. And I think that gets into one of those uh, core functions you talk about. Now, you all, uh, Randy, at the Texas Public Policy Foundation, you put out this great YouTube video. And I highly recommend anybody who's wanting to learn a little bit more about this issue, you know, tune in and see that's on YouTube. So I'll put it in the show notes, but it's titled Playing Politics with Public Safety Will Defunding Police Make Us Safer? And so, one of the points you made during that video was that some of these core functions of policing would be lost due to a loss of funding. And one of the examples you used was training. But maybe we can get into that just a little bit, the training portion. But what are some of the other core functions that would be lost if you begin to lose funding? Well, when you lose funding, you understand that you can't perform training. And I know we're going to talk more about that because you have to go down to simply the core functions of policing, which unfortunately become law enforcement, right? I, I oftentimes make the distinction between federal law enforcement officers and our local police officers, right? One does law enforcement specifically, and that's the enforcement of laws. Policing is a whole different thing that runs a whole spectrum, right? It's not just the enforcement of laws. It's being a part of the community. It's preserving the police. You know, the the idea with police officers ideally is to generate voluntary compliance with the law. They can't do that if they're not 
able to interact with their community because they're they're down cut so short that the only thing that they can do is respond to emergency calls. You know, that's not community engagement. That's not good for the community. And it's also not good for the officer, right? When, when officers only respond to 911 calls, what is their perspective of what the community is made up of, right? It's every interaction they have with the community is negative. Every one of them in that circumstance. It's either people at their worst who've been victimized or criminals at their worst who are preying on them. They don't have the positive, healthy interactions that police officers do every day when they do community policing and community engagement, and they go out and talk to people on a, on a different basis. Well, my early exposure to this was while I was in law school. There was a police officer that used to uh, he used to guard the school, used to come by, and it was part of his beat. Uh, he'd come by and just check on us, you know. But he also worked the streets in the city where I went to law school. And uh, one of the things he did talk about was, and he didn't really have a name for it at the time, but you know, it was community policing, as you're describing. He would talk about you know having conversations with young kids. You know, they'd see him on the street hanging out in the corner. He'd go talk with them, introduce themselves, and put a friendly face to law enforcement. But he'd make these personal personal investments in them, ask about them, ask how they were doing. And, uh, you know, he would tell me, say, in his opinion, he thought that that would bring a little bit more peace to some tough streets that he was working on because people had exposure to police, not just in the worst moments of their life, but as somebody that's actively part of their community. Is that is that an assessment that you would agree with? Oh, absolutely. It sounds like you had a very wise officer you were talking to. <laughs> we did. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. That's helpful. You know, one of the things when you, uh, you termed it, I, I think, uh, very eloquently when you said that he, he was making an investment in the community, you know, when the only thing that the public sees the police in, because most of us don't have continuous interactions with, uh, with our police officers, when the only contact that they have is from uh, you know, the 24-7 media cycle of a viral video of an officer behaving badly or questionably or something that they can't understand, if that's their only exposure to law enforcement, there's no reason for them to, let's say, give them the benefit of the doubt, wait for due process and wait for an investigation or an explanation of what happened. But that investment, right, when, when you know your police officers and something happens in that town that looks bad, let's say on video, and you know, all use of force looks bad on video, you might stop a second and say, all right, I'm going to have to hear about this because these, this doesn't look like the officers that I know there, right? I, mean, I, I know these, these men and women, and, and this doesn't seem like something they would do. There must be more to the story. So you've at least earned the benefit of the doubt for a moment, right? In, in that situation. Yeah, no, I, I totally agree with that. You know, uh, and I'm, I'm talking, of course, I'm gonna give a little shout out to uh, Officer Green, who, who used to uh, help us out there. Uh, but one time at school, uh, you know, there was, a, uh, and I won't get into the names, but there was there was an altercation with a uh, with a classmate and something that none of us understood. And Officer Green had to take care of it immediately. And I agree with you. I think that that investment he made in us, he was always checking on us, asking about how we were feeling, like, how are you stressed out? You know, how are you doing with finals and everything? You know, Everybody knew he was doing his job. Everybody knew the perspective he was coming from. And even though one of our classmates, unfortunately, was being ushered out of the school, you know, I think that that everybody just gave him wide latitude to do what he was doing. And there wasn't really even a question that he was doing the right thing. Yeah, that's a a great example. And and that's where that, that investment paid off for him. Absolutely. Absolutely. So one of the things that you talk about, Randy, is improving as opposed to defunding the police. And so I guess if you were king for a day and you had a charge of an entire precinct or uh, even just a, a police department, you know, how would you improve as opposed to defund the police? Oh, that's a great question. Um, as a conservative, 
you know, obviously I, I believe in fiscal restraint and, and small government and all of those good things. But I also believe, as, as most do, that there are certain core functions of government and policing is one of those. And because of that, it needs to be properly funded. When I say properly funded, the funds need to be allocated for the purpose of policing and not by policing itself. And I, you know, I, I've written before about uh, you know, not overusing traffic enforcement as a, a means of revenue generation by our police officers. I think that that's a poor use of our police officers and uh, puts them in the awkward position of having to fund themselves through, either through fines and fees, uh, traffic citations, or even civil asset forfeiture. But that's obviously a conversation for another day. But if it was my department to run, the first thing I would do is completely overhaul and re-examine our training methods, not only our in-service training, which is incredibly important, but also how we were doing our basic training or where we were sending them to. Currently, police officers use, uh, and there was a, a great research series done by uh, Force Science Institute recently that showed that currently almost all law enforcement academies use what's called a block and silo method of training for their physical skills, which is a large part of their use of force training. And they showed and explained how that, and what I mean by block and silo is they're taught a block of instruction, you know, a chunk, and then it's siloed. It's never integrated with the other skills that it should be used with. And that that becomes a very perishable skill that they may be trained right? In the technical term of it, by the end of the week, they can perform some or, or most or some of the techniques that they were shown. But by the end of the academy, they retained almost none of those skills, that it's a, it's a very perishable skill. And I, I always like to use the, um, the analogy of like a, of a sports uh, in high school, even. Look at, you know, I, I wrestled in high school. Our coach didn't bring us in for 40 hours one week at the beginning of season and then say, okay, I'll see you at the at the first meet you <laughs> right. know, seven weeks from now. You know, we, we trained much shorter uh, intervals, but much more frequent exposures to those. I want to transition into use of force. And so I love what you said uh, on your YouTube video talking about uh, the public often has a hard time understanding use of force episodes. And so I want to bring in just sort of a, a non-human example just to sort of uh, set this up a little bit. And so years ago, I, I saw this Facebook video and it was sad. You know, it was sad. There was a, a dog that uh, unfortunately had to be shot and it was killed during the course of an arrest. And people filmed this and put it on, on Facebook. And so a lot of commentary, a lot of Monday morning uh, quarterbacking going on, a lot of people giving uh, harsh criticism to the police officers. And as it turned out, what was going on there was that there was someone being arrested and there was a difficult situation. The person being arrested did not secure their dog in the car and the dog got out and the dog doesn't know better. You know, it was it was defending its owner. It sees police officers. It doesn't know the difference and is defending its owner doing what good dogs do. And uh, the owner, you know, didn't take care of this in advance and was being arrested and and, and it was an ordeal. And unfortunately, you know, the police officers had to shoot the dog. The dog was biting him. It was a big dog too. I mean, it was, a, it was I believe it was a Rottweiler. And so a very powerful animal. And, you know, the officers need to go home safe at the end of the day. And they're trying to make sure that everybody in the community is safe as well. And so people criticized without understanding that. And so what I want to do is, Randy, if you could help us out, there's an objectively reasonable standard, as I understand it, when it comes to the use of force. And so can you explain that to our audience and then also maybe get into why the public has such a hard time understanding that? Sure. Yeah, the objectively reasonable standard uh, was given to us by the Supreme Court in Graham versus Connor. And the basics of what it says is that 
an officer's use of force has to be judged through the eyes of a reasonable officer, meaning in a similarly trained officer in similar circumstances. And I think that the difficulty there is understanding how that's subjective, right? Because it, it seems pretty subjective. An officer's use of force is determined based on their fear of receiving bodily harm. And that fear is directly related to the officer individually. It's also related to the suspect, by the way. So you got a, a, two infinitely adjustable variables there. The offender's threat you know, the threat that the offender poses in, in the situation you discussed, it was a Rottweiler, right? Um, right. That's, that's a significant threat. And then you have the officer's ability, right? If this officer is a 30-year canine handler, he may have a different response to that threat or that perceived threat than a police officer that's one year out of the police academy and has never had to deal with an aggressive dog. So the officer's ability, training, physical stature, all of those things come into play when they're using force. This Supreme Court case does not require that officers use the least intrusive method of force. They only say that whatever force the officer uses, it has to be reasonable in those circumstances. And that's the part I think that a lot of people don't understand, right? The public looks at a use of force incident differently because they're not trained police officers. So that, so their, their perspective of what they're viewing is very different than a, uh, than a police officer. They also don't understand the realities of using sometimes what we would call less intrusive methods of, of force, right? You, you hear the question, why didn't they shoot him in the leg? Why don't they shoot the knife out of his hand? Um, you know, oh, it was only a <laughs> knife. Why did they have to, have to shoot him, right? They, they don't have the, the background really to, to understand a lot of what they're seeing. And I think that that's probably the biggest strain on our police and public relations is when we have a use of force scenario that looks horrible but is completely legally justified. That's where the the public has the most difficulty understanding, right? Why are the officers not being held accountable for this because it looks terrible? Um, Right. And and I think that that one's the hardest to understand because when when it's legitimately an unlawful use of force and the officer's charged, well, everybody, including the police officers, understand that. But when it looks bad and the public thinks, well, that, that must be illegal, right? That must be wrong. Um, and then they're told, well, no, actually it's not. That disconnect is really difficult to wrap their heads around. Yeah, you know, I've come around on body cams. on police. We hope you're enjoying our conversation with Randy Peterson so far. We'll pick up where we left off in the next episode when we resume our discussion about body cameras, what they leave out, the importance of not resisting arrest, and the impact of the Ferguson effect. Thank you for listening. We'll see you next time. Have a great day, everybody.